0: Well,
1: All right, welcome everyone. I want to uh welcome Oscar uh, Muñoz uh who's joining us. Now, this one Oscar, we've been trying to make this happen for uh for quite a while. Uh your story is I I just can't begin to fathom the the story arc to your journey. I mean, an undocumented immigrant uh, becomes one of America's most successful and self-made CEOs. That's that's the American dream. And I'd love to have guests on like you that have actually come from very little uh, and then risen to to such a level through hard work. And if we can get just one or two or three nuggets from you that people can implement into their own lives, then, hey, that's that's a success. So, Oscar, welcome. Well, thanks for having me and congrats. And on your success with, uh, with your new business ventures, but
0: more importantly, uh, you know what, thank you for your service. Uh, it's, uh, it's quite, yeah, not just the service, but you know, team six. And <laughs> that's a, that's impressive.
1: Okay? It's a lot of uh,
0: congrats. On All
1: right. Thank you. Uh, with, the, with regards to the business uh, talk to me in 10 years, I'll let you know how it's, uh, it's going. <laughs> I'm a, I'm very much as we call a, a new guy. Uh, I think the only thing working in my favor is, uh, is a sense of urgency uh, and work ethic. So I, I'm just not going to quit. But for, for for the listeners, please, from the very start, I, I'd love to know about your family and and the journey into the United States. Particularly, it sounds like you guys settled down in Southern California, which is my home state. But give us the entire background uh, with what you're comfortable with.
0: Sure, um, you know, not unlike a lot of people. And I have never really spoken about
1: it until I wrote
0: this book. Um, Just because it just wasn't evident. I didn't want to have that, oh, gee, look at me. I I need something extra special. But the the simple story is uh, I was born to a uh, a, My my mom was a single mom. uh, And after I was born, she had the opportunity. uh, My uncle had already come to the United States. This is in uh, the area of Claudus, which is south of the border of El Paso. Um, So she had an opportunity. My uncle had already been here, got all her papers aligned fashion. So she went out to try to make a life, left me with my maternal grandmother, who I spent all the first eight years of my life. Uh, and we roamed around that northern part of Mexico. between family and friends. Uh, she didn't have, uh, we didn't have our own home, but we were not homeless. Anybody understands the Mexican community and the concept of familia or family. Uh, you're never, you're never without anything because you have all this So uh, a lot of my latent and dormant values about uh, life and the Struggles and difficulties that we complain about. I put him in context with what she went through in her early life and what her and I went through together. And I, I always comment, you know, "Her, her, my worst day of work is probably a, a good day for her. She was a maid. Ended up being a maid at the uh, at the Flamingo Hotel in Las Vegas wow. in earlier years. So it's just a story of you know people that raise you, the impact they have upon you. I think is a big part of my story because uh, she was. Never complained, never blamed anyone. Hard work. If something wasn't getting, she just worked harder, and she's always that. And, and that a lot of great stories in the book about the recognition she received almost posthumously, but it, the, the the latent values that that it had for me. So I spent those years traveling. My mom got settled, um, and then uh, the undocumented part was back in those days. You could just drive across the the, the you know the, the border. It wasn't a lot of things back in the day, so I didn't mean to be an person. It's just my mom and, importantly, her new husband, who I never met, and her two new kids. So she had another family that I got dropped into. Um, and for all of us, we can understand if we met somebody, married someone, and then all we'll of a sudden learned, wait, you have, you have a child? It's eight years old. And it's not in this country. So that was an uncomfortable uh, situation for a little while my, uh, my new father who became, I referred to him as my dad. Because I never knew yeah. my real dad. Um, those early years were rough because, um, you know, most guys and certainly Latino guys, it's just the concept of that was not good. And so I was a little bit of an outsider at home and uh, with all the requisite, uh, you know, physical aspects that <laughs> comes out to, he was not, he was not easy or very nice to uh, me for a long period of time. Uh-huh. Um, so, uh, you know drove across with my uncle and, uh, you know, began to work on my sort of documentation, but then, um, this, that's how we came over and started going to school and, you know, learned the language and, uh, and, uh, you know, I had enough aptitude over the course of time to uh, to have somebody sort of lead me into the direction of going to college. I went to college, which opened up a whole new world of things. And, and from
1: that on, the story you know builds on itself. You know, it, people talk about the American dream and, and, I even say that all the time. Hey, that's the American dream. Your story is exactly the American dream, but um, I I was born in the United States. I mean, our our family came in 1899 and and we stayed in the San Francisco area, but um, you know, for, for people say we got this border crisis. I mean, these are just people seeking opportunity and and there's something beautiful about that. I know there's, there's a lot of policy that has to be put in place, but um, do you think a lot of us who were born here just, and I, I don't want to paint you into a corner. Take take some of the the the, the entitlements that we have for granted.
0: You know, I, I'm not one to cast a, what I would term as aspersions. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I do think that we, uh, especially more increasingly more nowadays, we we tend to listen to certain channels of information, mm. and that is what fuels that ardor. Um, I, I had a, uh, I have a very close friend who's a, a cardiovascular surgeon, and and just always goes off about the border and the crisis, and illegal aliens are taking up our job. and, and he's so angry. It's like it's like, and it's, uh, his name is Bob. We'll call him Bob. like that? Uh, it's like, Bob, I'm sorry. It's like you realize that I'm one of those immigrants, and I, I also don't know how many of those. People trying to make a better life for themselves um, are taking your job as a cardiothoracic no. surgeon. So yeah. and so, there, there's there's that hyperventilated sort of uh, media noise that comes on both sides. It's not just one side or the other. Because we should have some structure about how we let people across the board. There should be some measure. But again, we should also look at the, you know, the realization that in this nation, are um, what the jobs that we have. A lot of Americans. Um, that we're up and don't want to do them anymore yet need to be done. And so is that a consideration? But we, we've we chosen to go to our respective sides and just say F you to each other and then just make this a big political battle, yet nothing gets done. And so we have crisis. And then, and then where I do get involved is when you start separating kids from their parents. And that kind yes. of stuff is just, yes. you know, that's just not that, that you know, uh,
1: I've, I've taken stances on certain things for those kinds of reasons. You know what we call that? Just be a freaking human. As a human, would you separate parents from their ch- their right. children? The answer but is no.
0: What part of that makes doesn't make sense to anyone,
1: no matter who you are? And
0: uh, and so, um, you know, so those kind of things. So, yeah, it's, uh, I, I don't think people are, are entitled. They just don't have, um, they don't have the A right perspective. Mind. A perspective. And, yeah. and, and, and seek it. It's like, you know, le- learn. Um, you know, just you hear one thing, go to it. I always tell people, Look at the source of your information. There's these great charts online. They're media bias charts. So there's a there's a chart that basically says from crazy lunatic fringe to you know thoughtful sort of middle of the road thing. Whatever you read, don't just take the headline and start running around your circle. Did you hear that taking the vaccine is going to make you grow five eyes? And it's like I read it. All, and, and so, but you look at what the sources and you look at all these publications on both sides. So just know what your information is. And then importantly, I say, form your own freaking opinion. Yeah. Uh, Why, why is it that you have to listen to it? What do you think is it? That's the human sort of test, if you will.
1: Well, that's the whole point of education is to develop critical thinking and allow people to have opposing opinions and engage in debate. But Hmm. I do want to avoid, I, I will say this, you sound like a centrist, I'm a centrist, uh, when people asked what that is, I said, we like to solve problems. Uh, so uh, I think this, this issue with the, uh, the border um, is, is of our own doing this has to go to NAFTA and everything else. This, this was avoidable uh, in, in focusing on the wrong areas of the world when we should have been focusing here on the United States and the North American continent uh, to make uh, the general area better. But I will, I will tell you we've gotten, I'm going to brag on her. I love it. We just helped her form her own company alongside uh, two partners but she is a first-generation American. Her mom came across the Rio Grande uh, when she was pregnant with her. And uh, oh, wow. this young woman, just the work ethic and just the character are, are amazing. And I, I cannot wait 20 years from now to watch what she, uh, she does. I mean, she's doing it every day. But So you were the first of 10 – well, the eldest of 10 children uh, within the familia – and first one in your family to attend college was, uh, I've, I've got to ask, financially, were, were there scholarships or were you working day and night on top of studying? No, I was very
0: fortunate. Um, uh, again, people come into your life to help you. And while in high school, um, because of the environment, my dad was a meat cutter, a union meat cutter. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. Nobody in our you know, you know, community, certainly in my family, had ever gone to uh, college, and uh, I, I, Mrs. Duckworth, a high school counselor, caught me in the hallway between classes one day, and I'm like, come over here, and I'm like, oh, I'm in trouble again. Uh, and her question was, hey, I saw. I don't know you, I saw some of your test scores, you know, where are you thinking of going to college? And my answer was, um, as long as I, was there, I said, what's a college? And then she started laughing off, like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. And so she took it upon herself, and I learned later, many others, not just me, to sort of help them understand that this avenue was potentially open. Now that's the first part. The second part is to your point the economic aspect is like, what does this mean? And what do you mean I have to go somewhere and travel? And how would I who's gonna you know pay for all of this stuff? And so she helped me understand back in the day how scholarships work. And I was very fortunate to the various schools that I got to to have full ride scholarships for tuition and books. I stole, to your, your question, I, I went hungry, I slept on floors and couches. I didn't, I know, I'm trying to remember when the first time I actually paid for a place to live for me personally, it was probably not to my junior year. I just met some incredible people that are lifelong friends to this day, who, you know, just young, you know, knuckleheads. So I just hung out on couches and and uh, you know, it's just it was just one of those things because I just I
1: couldn't afford it basically. So yeah, it was a lot of wow. yeah. So you were you were basically transient for your freshman and sophomore year. Yeah. I would uh Oh yeah. my god. And my dad was, uh, again,
0: uh, it's just a classic story. You know, I, I told you the early story about how well, he and I came together. and wasn't his son, didn't want to acknowledge it. But when I had this opportunity to go to this thing called college, uh, when I was leaving for work, and I had a choice of many different colleges, thankfully, and I, I chose one just because it was close by, University of Southern California, USC. Um, and uh, when I was leaving, he gave me a check for $142, um, and he said, "You know." I don't really know where you're going or what you're going to be doing. Here's something to help. It always makes me a little joke up just because you have to know him. Hard ass. I was not his favorite. I was not. But over time, he had softened the point, And just sending that message was great. And he gave me the keys to a, um, a piece of shit car pretty much. But hey, it, was, it was transportation. I, even then, I was embarrassed. I would park it kind of way off, you know, and then go back there and take my clothes out and all that sort of stuff, and then drive off so never uh, so nobody would see me. But, yeah, so all those things. But, again, you, you think about it, like, oh, my God, that's such a uh, what a dramatic story. It wasn't really dramatic. You know, listen, I was going to college. I was enjoying I made a ton of best friends that I have to this very day. Back to the concept of American dream. It opened up an avenue for me that I would have never had opened. And, but it wasn't easy and it wasn't handed to me. And people are like to say, Well, you got handed all this stuff. It's like, Not uh,
1: at all. The, the
0: scholarship I got was earned on merit. They just don't give it. wasn't a, gee, let's give this to some poor Latino kid. It was on merit on my scores and my ability. And then, of course, the other stuff I had to work on my own. And that's how I worked it. It's just one way or the other. I made it work. What, what, what did you major in? Mm. I started, so all my aptitude tests said I should be um, a doctor. So I spent my first two years um, in the pre-med program, uh, and I went, my, my, the, the summer of my sophomore year, I went to work at USC County Medical, which is the era between the Barrio and Watts. So when you want to talk about, I mean, you, you know, it, it doesn't even compare to the stuff that you've seen in your life, in your background, but, you know, a war zone comment, that, that was, that hospital was the recipient of all of that. And in that summer, and I got to see all of that, just being, you know, being an intern there. And the doctor said, and it's like, actually, you know, you, the aptitude is not an issue. He's like, one of the things you're going to have to learn if you're going to become a medical professional is you're going to have to learn to not care about human life. Mm. Because you're going to you're going to lose people all the time. And if it carries it, it's going to drive you bats. And I, that was really impactful on me. It's like, you know, I don't know that I cannot care. I, I just, you know, it's just, it was just difficult to see. Uh, people of my heritage, right, coming in, maimed and tortured, and drunk guys with a woman who's pregnant with a baby—just I mean, all of these visuals that, and worse—and um, I, I would never not care. So I went back, and you know, I transferred to the business school, which a lot of my kids transferred, me, and then I decided to go to law school because you know, a doctor and lawyer sounds better than uh, what a business person is, because
1: I didn't know exactly what that meant, actually. Uh, sure. So, hey. business at the end of the day. It, it was business at the end of the day. And I know you got your MBA from Pepperdine. Did, you said you got your law degree as well?
0: No, no, no. I went no, no,
1: to, no, uh, okay. no, no, no. Okay. I, no, I quickly, uh, that was another situation where
0: I um, got in, uh, went, and uh, like, I did not have a, a scholarship. And, and you cannot borrow books and um, oh. borrow people's couches in law school first year. So I deferred um, that I would come back a year. I went back to get a job,
1: got a job at Pepsi as a financial analyst,
0: and never looked back.
1: Now is this I've always heard the PepsiCo of old had amazing sort of leadership development programs was that back in the day or did they put you right in the job and
0: no no and they, they had,
1: that, it's funny their leadership development
0: was um was more trial by fire it was intense um the conversation that a senior HR person came so there's three of us hired out of some 200 people it was like this It was they made it so painful so you finally get selected for this role and then the three amigos, as we call it, we know we hung out every day, went out on weekends, went to lunch. And, you know, we spent three months kind of getting, you know, got a job. And, and uh, somebody comes from New York one day. This is in Southern California, in Torrance. And uh, Sean, Don, and myself, those are three guys. This guy pulls us over and at the dinner and he goes, hey, this is how it works at Pepsi. The three of you work for this one person. He's either going to move up in a year to 18 months or he's going to be gone. Um, and one of you will uh, ascend to his position, the other of you will be fired, and the third of you will give another year to find the right place. Thank you very much, got to go. It <laughs> <And> you're like, <laughs> it was like, okay. Uh, so uh, leadership development program, it's like you quickly uh, had a sense of the, the need to survive. So uh, I was fortunate to be the one that ascended, and uh, one of the people that was in that initial list is still, and uh, you may have retired by now, but he stayed, he's been with the company the whole time. And the third person was you know, left and is doing his own thing and succeeding somewhere else.
1: I'm sure. That is, uh, I guess sometimes, uh, it is better to be feared than loved. Um, <laughs> according to PepsiCo, uh, it can be a great driver, uh, of many things. Um, so it, after PepsiCo, you, you, you took a break and then went back and got your MBA at Pepperdine, correct?
0: Uh, no,
1: I, uh, I went to, law uh, so I was, uh, so i started so pepsi back to the leadership program
0: they were it was you it was you needed to learn to think on your feet It was very intense so it was very much a, a learning ground um but uh, so then i got admitted to pepperdine and i was going to go in the night program i was poor so I, I really couldn't take the time off to go to any other school so they paid for the program um but midway through my my mba is when coke kept came calling so I switched to Coke in the middle of the process. Yes. So, so I went at night and it was a uh, satellite
1: school. So everybody's like,
0: ooh, Pepperdine, what a great, beautiful place.
1: Yeah, I saw it twice. <laughs> I, I, I thought you actually went to Pepperdine. Pepperdine is one of the most beautiful campuses it is. Uh, on it the is. coast. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. So I, wait, wait, wait. When you switched from PepsiCo to, to, to Coca Cola, I mean, were you literally shown out the, uh, the door with, with disgust? Yeah. Yeah, uh, it, it wasn't so much discussed just because I mean
0: I, I, I had enough of a, you know relationship with people, but it was the process. So having having knowing that would happen the, the night before, I announced I, I had gone into my office and taken all my personal stuff. So you know, like the whole concept of walking out with a box just seemed uh, just seemed like not something I wanted to do. So I understood. I said, "Hey, listen, I understand. I'm, I'm walking out the door as we speak." And a lot we had a, we had one of the longest going away parties because it started at lunch and. I don't remember, but it was the wee hours of the morning at the time. We finally got home. So we had a nice celebration. And it was a great time there. I learned a lot. But the peps the coke job was probably two to three levels above where I was. So it was the right thing for me to do at the time. So it was a really big move. I went from, you know, in essence, a manager to kind of a managing director kind of role. So I took a pretty big jump in responsibilities.
1: Okay. So I think that, that's, a, that's a great point to sort of reflect on here and I'd love to get your opinion. So first you've now are stepping into a position two or three levels above where you have, uh, did you feel prepared? Did you feel behind the curve? Um, how did you, if you did feel that you weren't totally, uh, prepared, how did you sort of deal with the pressures of performing in that position? Uh, it's a great insight because,
0: and I, it's funny, I write
1: about this in the book because mm-hmm. it's so critical.
0: Uh, so how did I go? Well, I am 26 years old at the time, taking a role that's probably um, four years, anyone near I mean, my, my level, there's no one within my age group. There's, everybody's five to 10 years older. Uh, I'm coming from Pepsi, like I felt in Coke. Uh, Coke was, if you think of the Atlanta the city and New York, the city, and all they travel, They're very different places, right? More genteel and slow, New York being the frenetic place that it is. The cultures of the two companies were different. So I'm coming from these what I would call shark-infested waters. You see the competitiveness, the, the thrust that you have, in it. and I walk into this. You know, it was a local bottler. It wasn't owned by corporate. um The people around me were significantly more senior, and so the young this whippersnapper in me sort of sensed the world where it's like, pfft, like okay, these people are these dinosaurs, right? I'm like this, is that cool, this person is like. You know, Pepsi, you didn't see a lot of people that were older because it was just literally up and out in that place. So, the learning that I had was I went in kind of cocky and arrogant. I call it all asses and elbows, right? Like, hey, you guys, you guys clearly haven't done much in your career because you're still doing the same damn things. It was that very wrong mentality. And, and I had great coaching from my boss at the time. And again, the importance of people in your life that care enough about you to share and course correct is a really important thing to nurture. But he said the famous works and he's like, you know what? You're doing great, Oscar. We took a chance on you at your relative age. You've done great. You're crushing it. And yeah, there's only one advice I would give you. And it's like, goes, you're not yet as good as you think you are. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, it's like, wait, what the hell does that mean? That doesn't sound funny. And what he was saying, it's like, dude, slow your roll. I mean, yeah. it's like, and then you quickly begin. I quickly begin to see those people around me that I thought of, quote, dinosaurs. And mm-hmm. he said, you know, it's like, I remember this one more particular, Pat Walker. Like again brilliantly. Harvard MBA now twenty years uh, earlier, sir, but my ass didn't have a Harvard MBA. I, I didn't have it, and so when I got to meet with her and talk, and you listen and you and you and learn from people, uh, it's a it's a meaningful thing. So yeah, I went in cocky, and one of the first big lessons of my life was to listen and learn before you go, you know, leading
1: and spotting your mouth up. There's a lot of people that need to uh, to take that advice. I'll, I'll tell you, as a leader, I would rather tell somebody to slow their role. I would see that as a positive thing. They, they've got a sense for urgency. They're, they're driven than having to coax somebody into taking action. Uh, cause I, I'm not a believer that you can, it's, let me say this. It's harder to create drive where there is none. Uh, but it's of easier course. to slow somebody down. Um, do you feel you're a product? And I know you talked about your grandmother and your familia. Do you feel you're a product of a lot of the business leaders you serve, uh, for, Within PepsiCo, Coke, I know eventually U.S. West uh, and and CSX. You know, we
0: are. You know, I think Tennyson said it in his uh, one of his poems. We are all parts of people we've met along the way. I'm paraphrasing. Uh, I certainly consider myself parts of all the people around me, good and bad. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know that there's one or two people in my history that I would say, "Oh my God, that's that was." I think my grandmother and those early yeah. the, the values that she instilled in me, uh, latent as they were to come out, was probably the most significant. Everyone else was had good and bad. And, and I think one of the things that we learned going up, it's like, listen, I, I know how that made me feel when you said that, good or bad, right? I mean, the military is a great example. Is they, they, what is that sandwich thing where it's like always... Always deal with something bad. It's like, hey, that, those those headphones are good, and then they just brash you about this stuff.
1: And it's like, yeah, and uh, you know, your, your watch is
0: nice too, or something.
1: The the, the compliment sandwich. Yes, that's how that's most right. people run evaluations. Which I leave the room thinking, hey, I'm kicking ass. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah. Uh, and so, um, so I have learned a lot from the people over the course of time. But the most important lesson I've learned from people around me is that you know, if you if you allow yourself. You allow people around you to be able to share with you. Uh, you give them, you let, make them trust you enough that it's okay for them to say, you know, what, ask it, that's not a very good idea. Um, oh. That's a really meaningful thing. And it's it's tough to do for us because as leaders, especially for me, not only being young, but being Latino in a world of high finance where I wasn't necessarily the place that people like me were seeing, um, it made you kind of over index and trying to be overly serious and uh, uh, that was literally crushing my soul for once i was just trying way too hard and so i learned the concept of swing easy which is just again like you know you just you can't be everything to everyone you know you're you you do belong here uh, but that burden of perfection on someone my age and my heritage was a difficult thing to manage and work through
1: Mm, humbly humbly so for the listeners, you, you eventually, again, go to U.S. West and eventually take the CFO role at CSX. I mean, you were at CSX a long time, eventually taking the chief operating uh, role and eventually the, the CEO for a very short period of time. Uh, CSX, must've, you must have just loved the organization and the culture, I'm assuming.
0: Well, you know, it was my first C-suite job at a relatively young age. So the learning of being part of a large public company um, that was in an old industry. It's a railroad. Yes. Uh, and railroads have been around for a few hundred years. Uh, it was a, it, it was completely insiders. No one really from the outside, from anything like, who would want to go into into a railroad, right? I mean, I was working at AT and T and telecom, and I had a job at American Express cutting my way. Uh, but I saw the value from a financial perspective mm-hmm. of gosh, you know, if we could just get this business top line growing, at the market yes. cap was seven billion dollars, which is nothing. Um, I think it's at seventy today. Probably fifty-five or sixty when I left. So we created a ton of value um, in, that, in that space. But yeah, we, you know, it was a great year. I was part of a wonderful team. We did so many things. I was allowed my boss allowed me to do so much of the things that I knew from other companies to to change
1: the views there. And,
0: and we had a great uh,
1: great run there. I know. Eventually, in two thousand fifteen. Uh, well, one, you were on the board for United Airlines. Uh, eventually, they offered the CEO uh, spot to you. Uh, prior to stepping into that, it sounds like you've already solidified your leadership style. Sort of, sort of I, I want to say, not formulaic, but some sort of approach to, to how you lead. And it, it's very people-centric from what I got from the, uh, the book. Uh, we've, we used to have a mantra, mission first, people always. Uh, I, I'm assuming within CSX, it was those formative years that you sort of solidified your leadership style.
0: Yeah, and it was less as a as a support functions, he the head of, uh, of finance and technology, and all those other functions that I had. Um, but even then, I learned to uh, when you're dealing with the head of operations, and he always, you know, they always want more. It's like no, you can't. And I would always try to work with him. It's like help me um, understand why you need more, and let me figure out how. Trying to make things simple for people. Like, listen, you come to me for money because you think I hold the money, or I'm holding it back. It isn't my money. It's the it's the investors' money. If you walked into a bank and you said, "Hey, i got an idea for a business. You know, can you give me ten million dollars?" They're going to say, "Well, yeah, let's look at your business plan. How we're going to?" They want to know how you're going to get repaid. It's no different inside a corporation. Uh-huh. So I would always try to teach my teams to to listen about those things and how do you help operational folks. But even then, it was a struggle because I was a finance person. Um, when I became COO, this is a great story. Um, About a year in, I needed more locomotives. Locomotives are the heart of a a railroad, as airplanes are to an airline, right? Simple. Well, my predecessor would always ask for more locomotives. They're expensive. And he said, we need 100 locomotives per year. That was his operational sense. And I would say, help me put that into into numbers so I can enforce them. And so um, so, uh, fast forward, I'm in the job two years. We're running short of locomotives. I'm like, I need locomotives, and it's like, and the finance guy at the time, who was somebody I put in the job, it's like, yeah, but you got to, and it's like, Argh. and it's like, I should have, I should have done it earlier, and I wouldn't be facing this issue. Yeah. I always tell that story for us because, you know, unless you do it, unless you're you're operating something day in and day out, um, you understand that the structure and finance and legal and all sort important, important, important stuff. But as much as you can make it. Um, manageable for the person that has so many things that they're doing uh, and, and you know a financial thing is just one little thing how do how do you help them rather than be the structure that says no all the time and so I learned a lot from, from, from that process and so yeah my leadership style began to get established there especially in connecting with frontline mm. personnel union personnel in a world of a distributed workforce where it wasn't a factory floor but you know very much like an airline, it's a network business where, you know, you have a locomotive engineer and a conductor, that's two people on a, on a plane, on a, on a train, and you never see them in large masses. So I began this, this concept of listening to people and getting out to them rather than being this imperial uh, nature that stood afar from
1: them. So you you step into the CEO role uh, of CSX, and, and very shortly after that, you, you're, again, you take the role of United um, Airlines. For me, describe the the disposition of United Airlines when you stepped into that role.
0: Yeah, so just a quick correction. My role, my last role at CSX was COO. So I was oh, there. I was about to be the announcement for me to become CEO was in literally six weeks later. It was going to be announced that I would be the CEO within by the end of the year. This was late in the year, so. Um, so the, the state of the business at United was it was it was broken. They had uh, an attempted merger, uh, an ongoing merger with Continental, where I was on the board, uh-huh. was not had not been going well for a bunch of different reasons. Uh, business was failing, customers were upset. We didn't have any operational things. The financial numbers were awful. Uh, customer sentiment was below. Well. So it was just not a broken. It was a broken place. And then my my, my predecessor there uh, got into a little bit of trouble. Uh, with uh, some legal issues. And so he
1: had to step away from the role and I was, I was invited to join. So everything is relative given the amount of C-suite experience you had stepping in could be comparable to a young manager stepping into a bad situation. For them, give us your framework of you know you're inheriting this problem and the second you step into that office and take the role, you, the buck now stops there with you. What I mean, did you go in with a blank slate? Hey, let me just figure this out for 30, 60 days. Uh, or did you have sort of a, a methodology you were going to step step in with and try to solve that problem?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you always have your experience. Mm-hmm. Um, the CEO role is an incredibly different animal than a CEO role or a CFO role because of what you just mentioned. There is the box stops here. It's like, okay, there, there's no one that you, you don't have a boss. To me, your board is around, but you it's your decision. And so um, that concept is, was a little daunting for sure. Um, I've talked to you about I never walk into a situation all asses and elbows. I wanted to truly listen and learn uh, because the place was broken. The, 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 the sort of the leadership principles that I probably walked into is that having done a turnaround at United, a couple other smaller places um i know that the best way to start is to start with the right thing and figuring out what that right first thing is now everything is broken and you'll have many people telling you oh you got to fix this and you got to fix that and none of that none of that will be everything will be different so figuring out what that is and and when i walked around um visiting all the locations i could sense i don't know what it was a sense of this human like a save me concept like everybody smiled and took pictures but it's just this lingering of, you know let's see if somebody stayed on your coat a little longer held your handshake just a bit it was like an overall smiling and all an putting a good face but it's kind of like step for the or something it was, there was something yes. amiss and i think what leaders will sometimes we fail to do is look at and look for those small nuances of something's not right here and so my instinct told me, it's what I had done at CSX, so there was informant. It's like, you know what? I'm just gonna go out and talk to people. And in essence, hey, if things are broken, what do you think? Uh, and it's like, well, what are you gonna glean from that? I mean, these people don't really understand strategy and business and all that stuff. No, but they understand how this business runs and how customers feel them. And so I announced that I would be on this call, on this listening tour, and, um, and it turned out to be one of the most you know, insightful and, and intelligent things that I did, because. Um, Well, I didn't get any specific, I did get the sense that we could not do anything strategically. The platform, the one thing we had to start first is regain the the trust of our employees. Not our customers, not our investors, but the employees themselves. They had had eight CEOs in the previous 10 years. So, you know, the flip-flop of strategy and direction and people, you know, spouting off different things. We're going to be this and we're going to be that. Um, You know, when you're at at that level, you just come in and work for a living. It's like, listen, I am that, You're not making any sense to me, um, and there's nothing I'm going to say. So I made it an effort to go down at those lower levels, um, day and night, to really listen to them. And what I, you know, what I came away was this: is just like, wow, they are upset, they are angry, and and there's nothing we're going to say strategically that's going to make any sense to them because it doesn't include them. This listening tour, what it, what it in effect happened was they became uh, part of the solution. Now, of course, I didn't talk to 84,000 people. Of course, I, I couldn't find but you talk to one in a genuine way, and he or she tells five or 10 people, and they tell, and then all of a sudden it became this wave of, hey, this guy's different. He's actually listening to us. And then later, when we announced that regaining the trust of our employees was going to be the first thrust, that is something they understood. It's like, wait, what? You're going to, what do I have to do? It's like, you don't have to do anything. You have to, you have to. You have to put your trust in a place where I can regain it and it's my job to regain get it. So you don't have to do anything. I have to prove it, not promise to you what we're going to do. And so that was the philosophy. So it evolved on basic principles, but the actual action takes place when you're out there and you, you get a sense of what needs to be fixed.
1: I, I so I love this sort of, Belief of breaking down that ivory tower effect, as I call it, and I've seen that so often with the C-suite that sits within their their their, their throne, and never actually visited visits the thousands of employees that are running operations on the uh, the front lines. I mean, General Mattis was infamous for that despite his staff saying, sir, no, we need you here in the joint Operations center. He'd say, no, we're going to the front. I want to see what's going on. I want to talk to the, uh, the Marines, the young Marines. So is it true? You used a question. Uh, you posed a question to, to the people of what are the 10 dumbest things that our company does to, to help figure out the, uh, the right path. I
0: did. I did. And this wasn't the frontline people. You know, this was my senior most team. This was the C-suite. I said, you know okay. what we're going to do today? because It's like, you know, it's like, we're going to regain trust of folks. It's like, I'm hearing so many things from all these people. It's like, and it's like, what do we think the 10 dumbest things are? And let's methodically just fix it. So very easy, very simply respond to their needs. Like We recognize, you all know this is stupid. We just recognized it and we are attempting to fix it. That shows a lot, right? It, I call it proof, not just promise. And so the 10 dumbest things, I don't exactly know where I got that idea how, but I just hear it so much. And I mean, the things that we were doing, some were more extreme and difficult to solve. Some were so simple that it was just, and again, that work got around. This is like, okay, this is just a practical person who gets this and is free and willing to admit that this was a stupid thing and stop it and, and sort of reverse direction. on that.
1: So ultimately you orchestrated one of the greatest turnarounds in the airline industry ever. And it wasn't following sort of, let's call it the, the Harvard or Wall Street Journal uh, sort of strategic uh, approach that they would traditionally take. You, you said we're putting our people first uh, rather than most business leaders saying we're, we're putting our, 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 our revenue first. Um, what, you know, where do you think most leaders go wrong these days? I know there's pressure from you know, the investors, from the stockholders – but you do see some companies dispense with people as if they're are are a uh, uh, an itemized uh, item that, uh, itemized you know thing that they can just dispense with easily. You don't have that approach.
0: Yeah, and it, it's a delicate balance for sure because you just you can't walk around. Everything's nice, everybody's sweet, and mm-hmm. and you know you, you, the business has to work. So you have to make tough decisions for sure. Um, but again, I I think the the um, we increasingly live in a world where we're attenuating ourselves from people, right? It's so easy to be hybrid and work. Uh, and it makes, so this isolation, the ivory tower, as you, as you dub it, it gets even easier because, you know, I'm not supposed to travel out there. So, I, I, you know, it's it's hard for me to say writ large what leaders do or don't do. I, I don't believe a lot of them um, believe in the philosophy of listening and learning first. Um and a lot of it is people that reach a level are pretty intelligent people sometimes highly intelligent and your brain says you know um, that's not a good use of the mathematics the use of your time with your intellect like, figuring out strategic things and you know spending time with people who you know it's going to just take a lot of time it doesn't compute to some degree um and i think uh, i think that's kind of a little bit of the problem and what they have to understand is that that the computation isn't isn't linear you have to you it's not the, the value is exponential. Um, and it's it's, it's it, when you talk with the humans that are actually involved and the value that you get from that. And so I don't think people believe that it's worth the time or it takes too much or I'm going to set the false expectations. Gosh, if I talk to everybody, we're all going to have different opinions. I simply say, it's like you don't have to promise them. You have a conversation with an individual and he or she tells you something. You just listening makes all the difference. And then you say, listen, thank you for your input. This is all going into the hopper, yes. And there's going to be better yes. decisions. And, and your particular thing, mayor, you don't promise that you're going to fix everything. You just promise that listening and putting your thoughts into this thing are going to be are going to make sense. And so there are practical ways to get a lot of those things, but you also have to be genuine about it. So somebody may say, "Okay, yeah, I'm yeah. going to go do yes. this," but then you go out there. So Mattis was effective because when he was out there, you knew he wanted to be out there, right? It was not; it wasn't like it was a checklist. A lot of people where they go wrong, this is a place where they go wrong. It's a check. Okay, well let's we're gonna go visit seven facilities in the next four months. Yeah. And then you fly in there's a thousand people and cameras and recording. Look at me, I'm with the people. And the people are like, uh, ah, yeah, right. Uh human dynamics are so simple. We respect and trust in people that we think genuinely care about us. And what and, and when it's that fake thing,
1: it's like, you know yeah. what, you're wasting your time. So I think that's an area
0: where people probably go wrong
1: people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Um, and I know we've all heard that, uh, that line. Um, how did you balance personally the, the belief, and I'm with you, you know, your human capital, it may not be on the balance sheet, but it's there. It's, it's there. How do you, how do you balance the importance of people with maintaining standards? Cause I see some people get that wrong. And I've seen, you know, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on her name, but the former uh, chief talent officer of Netflix, um, it'll come, Patty McCord, talked about how they viewed letting somebody go from a business as a service to them to allow them the time to go find a culture where they truly fit. But how do you balance again between people and, and sort of instructing that, yes, we believe in people, but you have to contribute and you have to maintain a standard that we set within the company?
0: Um, the standards for senior leaders are just different. It's not that hard mm-hmm. to make a tough decision with those senior leaders because, um, so I have a I, I have a, a much more uh, an affinity to make the right decision at the senior level for uh, a host of different things: uh, capability, work ethic, um, going with the flow, working with the team, aligning. You know, what, those all those different factors, and it's relatively easy to make those. When someone isn't there, they quickly know that they're not fitting, and so. Almost everyone I've always let go has always been a relatively amicable thing. Um, yes. Uh, one key person says, "Hey, you know what, Oscar? I get it. Uh, this is in Chicago. You know the sports analogy, because you know I'm from the '85 Bears era, and you're more of a Western, uh, West, uh, West Coast offense, and and that doesn't fit me. I get it. You know, we'll see you later, kind of thing. Um, so at, at that level, it, it's it's really a little bit easier, if you will. Yes. It's it's at the lower levels." that it's, by way, I have a much higher standard because a lot of those those people, whatever they're doing, usually they're not doing right, is because they've never been told or taught how to do it any other way. And so before we just universally dismiss these folks, has anyone ever actually talked to them? Because they probably learned whatever they're doing from their predecessor, who learned from their predecessor, and it's just, that's what I was taught to do, this is how I do it, you know, don't trust people, don't let them go, they're trying to screw you, um, where that's not necessarily the case. So that you can teach. So at United, we went through a very difficult, time-consuming and somewhat costly to teach our frontline supervisors the concept of caring for their employees in a way that made them successful. It never said you can't let go of people. Now we have a union, so there's all sorts of processes. But the value of bringing people along willingly is such a more valuable and durable leadership um, uh, sort of outcome than forcing or putting fear. Um, you know, and, and that's always been my philosophy. And so you go through a lot of efforts to teach and counsel folks. So, um, but again, for me, the, the standard for dismissal was infinitely higher the lower you went in the organization.
1: I, I knew you're also a believer in communication and that's one of the, the, the soft skills, the attributes that, that a senior leader, that any great leader must, uh, master. And it's been even further complicated with the, you know, advent of social media and managing crises. Um, how did you go about, one, sort of developing that skill for yourself, but two, for for, for the leaders underneath you? Um,
0: there's an organization that I was sent to a long time ago as a youngster um, uh, that um, was basically kind of a public speaking class. And what, what the benefit of it from us at an early age was how nervous you saw a other people, so you weren't alone. Two, the skills they taught you were very simple, but the most poignant and memorable thing for me was seeing myself on the video and cringing it's like oh my god i do that i look like that when i say that i sound like right we have this eternal shame and what what you attribute it to it's like okay so as you are reflecting and, and you know commenting on yourself think of what the people you interact with every day that's what they see and so for me that was very meaningful and i have sent probably thousands of people over the course of my career to this firm to do this because it's just been such a critical sort of life-changing beyond the, the technical skills of how to how to talk and direct and look at people and all that, which is important. And more that reflective things like, wow, that's how I come across to people and how I want to change that. And it, it just builds confidence, right? The ability to communicate openly and effectively is, is, uh, is, is not a common trait. But for people that do it they usually do it because they're comfortable in doing it and that's all you have to learn when you come structure and you're like listen i'm talking to you it's like well you're a question and yeah. i'm reading it yeah it's just yeah. there's a there's a better way of doing it so i think communication is key and it's an ever never ever ever ending thing and in particular in points of crisis you know one thing we haven't spoken about i had a horrible failure in situation with a, a passenger being beaten and dragged off an aircraft And
1: yes back
0: to communication the first response built upon lawyers and, and and risk managers and and uh, you know uh, you know uh, working working with the concept on uh, um, my initial public response was utter ridiculous and fair um two or three days later i'm going live on TV again getting the same level of coaching and my instinct the latent values from my grandmother actually it's like she would never blame someone else here and i just said you know i it was me. I let policies where she just get in the way of doing the right thing for another human being. That, she and and uh, we ended that chapter. But boy, was that a key learning: how to how to communicate better.
1: I so I remember that vividly, and, and it was on the news. We remember the first <laughs> response and what I call you broke ranks. You said, "Hey, I appreciate the the strategic advice from all of you. I'm doing this my way," which you knew was the professional uh, way to to demonstrate accountability ability. For as we discussed, the buck stops here. And uh, Mm. you did it masterfully. Uh, What I didn't get to, but I I do want to end with this. Oh, yeah. Um, That. So, no, 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 no. So, 37 days. Yeah. Into the role, you have a major heart attack, which eventually requires a heart transplant. So, I know uh, the, the stress of... Of working at a company like C- CSX's COO for years and being on the boards. Do you think you, you ignored your health at sometimes diet, uh, getting out there and, and working out?
0: You know, interestingly, so
1: I'll give you I'll give the broader
0: PSA on this because I think it's yeah. very important. And, uh, you know, you have a, a largely male audience, and we guys are probably the worst. Um, heart conditions and heart issues, heart failure is the biggest killer in America by far. I mean, cancer ain't got nothing to heart disease. And and mostly because the symptoms for heart disease are, are many and varied. There is no, oh, my God, I've got the big one. It hurts. It, it, yeah. it manifests itself in so many different ways. And so um, we, especially these guys, tend to blow it off. You know, we go for a workout or whatever. Something doesn't feel right. We, feel kind of, we jump in the shower or lay down for a second. You never get up. That's, that's a cold, hard fact. And I fortunately had a friend who's a cardiovascular surgeon, actually, um, uh, who we talked, uh, who would always talk to us about how, hey, listen, if you ever feel anything weird, just call 911. You know, the worst you can be is embarrassed that it was indigestion, but the best thing to do is it. so when I had symptoms that I had just gone on a run and my phone mm-hmm. buzzed, I went to walk, my legs kind of felt wobbly and the I, head I was climbing. Those are my two symptoms. I remember his views. And he said, call 911 immediately, tell them where you are. And he goes, and tell them that immediately because you may not make it past the phone call. And I remember that being dramatic. But when I got on that phone, I immediately said, here's where I am, come get me. Uh, And it ended up being uh, a massive heart attack that should have killed me. uh, But because I called so quickly, I was taken care of and eventually got a heart
1: transplant. But you didn't. From what I read, it's not like you took probably the downtime you should have taken because you were doing <laughs> interviews while hooked up to. It was it a dialysis machine to keep the? Uh, no, what it was, was it? it? No, the it was an ECMO. It's the ECMO. ECMO. It's the, thank you, yeah, thank you, yeah, thank you. Yeah, there. But you were doing interviews for senior management positions shortly after the transplant. Yeah, I had. A, I ended up having a, an LVAD,
0: which is a device
1: that artificially
0: pumps your heart. While the, mm-hmm. my old heart was, my old
1: heart had blown up.
0: Um, and so that we needed to replace it I wasn't quite ready mentally to accept that I couldn't fix it myself again another male trait like I do know I got this yeah. I figured this out yeah right I mean I was a I was an avid biker i'd been mm-hmm. run marathons I was a vegan um for, for ridiculous reasons but nevertheless um uh, yeah the concept was that when i when all of this um, when i kind of got past it um again mind over matter i mean it's it's amazing how a healthy personal attitude about things and how I felt about this company and these people kind of kept me going through that whole thing. So I was like, "Put me in, coach. Let's go." Um, now it would take a while for me to get physically ready to be seen because I had looked like hell. Oh, mm-hmm. It was, you know, Auschwitz-like kind of the feeling because it was, it was, uh, it, was uh, it was brutal. But uh, yeah, I survived and uh, you know, I competitively at that hospital um, post transplant, I got out. Um, the only person to beat me from a time perspective was a 21 year old kid. So I figured for my age group, I'm number one, so less than seven days from transplant to being on the car, left on a Thursday and I was in the office on Monday, again, I
1: don't brag about that just because, oh my God, but I felt you know good enough to be able to do that. Okay. But you've got to explain this to me. You're now an advocate of the flexitarian diet, which I have no freaking clue what that is. Uh, I think it was simple from this. The, I had this vegan thing. Uh, the reason
0: was my sister had cancer. And okay. uh, and I, I figured as everybody was supporting her, a lot of people were shaving their head. Yes. And I, I figured um, I had more weight than hair to lose. So I went with the, I, I adopted her diet in a sense, is why I was that way. But Trying to trying trying to again, I, I lost like 45, 50 pounds during that echo process. I, I had to learn how to walk again because my muscle all my muscle had had frayed, um, and, and and so my doctor uh, said one day, you know what, quit that bullshit. It's like we're not we can't feed you like that. We need you. I need you to eat two. Chicago deep style pizza for every meal. That's, that's kind of how I want you to eat. Right, up. I need to put some work back. And so, yeah. flexitarian term was basically eat whatever
1: you eat, whatever you want.
0: Um, flexible, right? It's
1: like. Um, do Do you put a higher precedence on your health today than you than than you did prior to the heart attack? You think?
0: You know, I think uh, again. Before, I mean, I, I was I was an avid biker and runner. Yes. Yep. So, uh, I can you know, of course, you know, whatever stuff. So. For me, I never knew my father, so uh, I don't know, it was genetics. A lot of heart failure was uh, was genetics, and so I I didn't, I I I wasn't particularly heavy or anything. uh, And so uh, I have renewed emphasis on it. In fact, I've I've sponsored a lot of research on how does somebody with a new heart exercise? Right. Um, So we're still
1: working. Uh, Not many people
0: ask that question.
1: (laughs) How do you go back to work and how do you exercise after a transplant? That's, well, you look, hey, let me say, you look good. You look you look healthy. You look happy. You look good. Um I can't thank you enough for your time. Uh for everyone listening, go purchase Turnaround Time. It's on Amazon. Um and, and you know, funny enough with uh Amazon, I do want to get your views. Uh uh Andy Jassy just came out. They revoked the, the 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 remote work. And uh it's gone over like a lead balloon within uh within uh Amazon. Where do you think we go with the desire for people to work remotely. Do you think it's here to stay? Do you think it's a hybrid model? It's industry dependent, role dependent. I know that's a huge debate right now for yeah. a lot of leaders trying to figure this out.
0: I think the most definitive thing you can say at this point is that a hybrid situation absolutely has to exist. I think mm-hmm. people are. I think it's a difference between what people don't understand, it, for the lack of at the lower levels, the importance of culture the importance of interaction with other humans for you to advance your abilities and your capability of leadership. It's hard to do it this way. It just It just is. And I think senior leaders are beginning to realize the impact on the business there. So they're, some are doing it more extreme, like get dressed back to work. Some are doing it more methodically and time-wise. But I, I think Mondays and Fridays in the office are meant yeah. forever. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how you bring that back. I don't know how to, I mean, and some people, banks have done that. And some, so some industries as well. But I think a healthy balance uh, is going to be good. Uh, but the, the time with each other—we are human, and our, our, our species needs that connection. It's just the way we're built, uh, and without it, I just don't think you can thrive as well as you can. Uh, you know, so sort far. Of
1: I, I came from an organization where team was literally in the title. It, it's part of our DNA. It's actually how I identify. Um, but I mean, could you imagine trying to forge? And create uh, and collaborate uh, and prepare a SEAL platoon for combat in a remote environment. I mean, so funny enough, if you remember Operation Eagle Claw, uh, which was the failed attempt for the 52 American hostages, uh, it was Delta Force's one of their first operations. uh, The founder of Delta Force was a guy named Charlie Beckwith. When he testified in the investigations that ensued, he basically put it this way. Bear Bryant can't build a national championship team with his quarterback in Alabama, his offensive line in Texas and his uh, defensive line in Oklahoma. And it, it sort of summarizes that it kills that, that culture, that ability for human connection, uh, you know, esprit de core, emotional intimacy, especially collaboration and innovation. So it's going to be interesting to see where this settles, uh, settles out. Sure. Okay. Well guys, back to my point, we're, we're finishing this out uh, again, go pick up turnaround time. It's available on Amazon. Uh, This is a must read, and I'll put it to you this way. If you are stepping into any leadership role, small or large, and you know you're stepping into, let's say, a situation that's not the best, this is almost like a user's manual to approach that situation to identify what needs to be done first. And Oscar Munoz, whose whose story is just, uh, again, the American dream, the epitome of the American dream, orchestrated one of the largest turnarounds in the airline industry uh oscar thank you for joining us best of luck with the book and in your future endeavors and let us know if we can ever be of assistance to you terrific well thank you thanks for having me and thanks to all of you out there for listening all right guys thanks we'll see you again